The amount of experience that you go through in doing what we do is many lifetimes. The problem is holding on to a fixed point for long enough to understand it. All fails in this You know when there's one person in the room that has a special light, that was him. He was the complete package. And everyone wanted a piece of him. Michael always had that aura about him. Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Pekovich, and this is episode number 218. Releasing in Australian cinemas on July 4 is Mystify, Michael Hutchins, an intimate and eye-opening documentary on the life, loves, and music of the late, great in excess frontman, Michael Hutchins, whose 37 years on this earth is beautifully presented in a documentary that successfully changes the narrative of a legacy marred by tabloid gossip. Joining me now to talk about Mystify, Michael Hutchins, is the film's director and Michael's friend and collaborator, Richard Lowenstein. Richard, I thank you very much for joining me today. No problems, thank you. Reading up just some research on this documentary, initially the plan was, years ago, that you wanted to make a feature film about Michael's life. How did the circumstances change that you switched to a documentary feature? Um... We, we went into uh, three rounds of funding to do a, a drama because, I mean, that's kind of my main, was main, my main interest and my main area of where I'm coming from was um, dramatic feature films. And I really did think, um, you know, I was going to get the story out to a much broader audience um, than I would with a documentary. And, and I guess... Also, you know, when was that? It was like <clears throat> mid-2000s I started that project. And um, the sort of um, cinema distribution and the um, four theatrical documentaries hadn't really taken off like it has in the last um, decade or so. So, <clears throat> or decade in particular. But so um, we, were, we were, I think it, I spent about five years developing the story, researching, immersed myself immersing myself in it and um, around the time that they the Channel 7 miniseries got um, announced and um, and also you know started getting casted and everything cast um, I, I basically thought well you know it's, I, I mean I saw who they cast and I saw the actors and I thought oh well maybe even if I got someone famous or someone you know with with a similar charisma or something, I just felt that I wasn't really doing Michael's story justice by not having him play himself, you know. Mm. And and we sort of looked at the whole dilemma and knowing the actual footage, we not only had ourselves in sort of beautiful 35mm and 16mm and everything, as well as all the behind-the-scenes home video stuff, but also um, knowing that what I hopefully would be able to access from all his other close friends and things, I basically decided that <clears throat> we should sort of structure the story much like a drama, but using the real footage and so that Michael could actually play himself. And, um, and so that, that's when the sort of search began for not any archival interviews, audio and imagery, um, but also... Um, interviews with all his close and intimate friends, some of whom never spoken before publicly. So yeah, it's sort of, <clears throat> and I'm so 
so so relieved I did because it's like, you know, even though you can like films like The Doors and Bohemian Rhapsody, it's it's not really them, is it? It's an it's an actor who you know may approach that charisma, but it's not really a proper record of the person's journey on this planet. It's it's a it's always going to be a fictionalization. Whereas this is, um, you know, it's very very close. Well, it is the person who existed. When it comes to the format, the structure of your documentary, did you know from the get-go what film you wanted to make, or perhaps more specifically, what film you did not want to make? Well, yeah, I knew I, knew I didn't want to make a formularized documentary with the talking heads and, um, you know, starting at childhood and there he goes, you know, growing up and there he goes playing in the garage and everything. So he sort of knew what we didn't want to do. And, you know, I've seen enough sort of not just documentaries in general, but I've seen enough sort of rock docs in my time to know that they tend to fall back into a certain genre, a certain formula. I thought that was a real kind of insult to the experience I'd experienced with Michael and I felt I owed him something a bit a bit better, a bit more engrossing, a bit more um, all-encompassing and immersive experience because sort of that's what he that's what he gave me in real life. You know, was this immersive experience with um, surround sound and you know, big big screen sort of stuff. It's like and and I um, and I just sort of knew. I mean, I my, I'm a sort of great fan of. Uh, D.A. Pennebaker with his observational style and, you know, we didn't have the luxury of being able to follow Michael around making a documentary, but I had followed him around um, and filmed unconsciously. So I actually, you know, I knew I, I wanted to make that kind of observational documentary, but with archive. And, that, and those ob- observational documentaries basically do follow... Uh, stylistic choice of um, the subject of your documentary speaks and you observe, but but usually other people or the friends or the relatives are either just audio or they're, they're in it themselves at that, at that point in time. So, you know, it was a very sort of easy decision from my point of view to, um, to just use Michael imagery and use audio to its greatest benefit, and not and not necessarily see our interviewees sitting there in a you know cliche recording studio or a hotel room or whatever it's going to be, or against a black site, you know. It's and and speak you know normally those things you end up speaking rigidly and uncomfortably mm. because you're aware of the lights and the camera and all that sort of stuff. So you know we we I travelled the world for a year or so just sort of taking people into little dark recording studios and and having just a mic between us and no one else, no other film crew. And then suddenly the memories would come and people would travel back in time. And um, and that that's the that's the nature of the film, is like travelling back in time in a very intimate level. And it's also just a great balance between the footage, the interviews, the music... I'm just really curious, though, what was more difficult to attain, the footage, the interviews, or the music? <laughs> the music the music was extremely difficult to, to um, obtain because of the, 
you know, the presence of managers and record companies and sensitive band members who weren't sure how they were going to be portrayed. And um, But, you know, honestly, the biggest problem was record company and management trying to use this as an excuse to sell back catalogue. And that's, I was very clear that that's not what the kind of film I was trying to make. I absolutely did not want a puff piece that, you know, ignored Michael's solo work or even um, underscoring, or even the, you know, the music he would have been listening to mm. in favour of, you know, cramming it full of NXS songs. So, um, you know, there was a few, um, there, was, there was a while there where I tried to come to an agreement with management and record company, but it all fell apart in a inglorious heap when they wanted right to final cut. And, um, and so all the music got pulled, all the in excess music got pulled out. And uh, so we went forward and made it without in excess music. And uh, we had the Max Q music, of course. We had some of his solo work, anything that he didn't write, you know, we were allowed to um, use. Uh, he or Andrew Ferris or the band didn't write, we were allowed to use. Um, and then finally, after a year of editing, we um, had the opportunity to show it to Michael's daughter, Tiger uh, Lily Hutchins-Geldof. And, um, and she you know, loved it, gave it her approval, contacted all the band members via email. Who, I mean, I must say she hadn't made any contact before and um, contacted the record company, the management, and 24 hours later we had the, uh, the music that we wanted. Wow. Once you have an approval like that, in, in going back to sourcing your interviews and having people talk about Michael and their relationship with Michael and you have this footage that's very intimate, very raw, is there a heavy feeling of responsibility on you to make sure that you're going to present this stuff in the, I want to say, I wasn't, wasn't going to say the correct light, but in the light that would um, not only appease you as a filmmaker, as an artist, but also all these people, family and friends who knew him through the years? Well, I mean, you, you, you can feel that presence, you know, you can feel that sort of um, people, family and friends saying, you know, I should be in it, and some of them are saying, I don't want to be in it, but I'm going to do an interview anyway, you know, and, um, but, but really what, what guides you, I don't, I don't really feel the responsibility, I feel the, you know, I'm a, I'm a cog in a machine and how to keep everyone happy, but, but that's not what guides me, what guides me is just authenticity, you know, yeah. and authenticity of character, authenticity of story, um, getting all the facts correct, getting the characteristics correct, having time to appreciate certain characteristics, Michael's humour, Michael's depth, Michael's depression that was there even before all the traumatic incidences in his life. And, you know, that, that, that wasn't just a sort of a sensational sort of um, cartoon cutout of a, of a portrait, you know, where you recognise the image maybe, but you don't recognise much else, you know. So I... I did know, you know, that everybody wanted me to make a certain kind of film or the friends that, that would do this. And, uh, but that's the, uh, you know, it wasn't a pressure because that's the film I wanted to make as well. That, that um, you could say set the record straight, but really, you know, what was the most interesting was capturing um, the person's that I knew and that I would recognize. 
before the film that I would recognize the character that I'd spent all that time with. And I would recognize his journey as an authentic journey and not some sort of journey that had been slanted by everyone's um, motivations or self-motivations, you know, which tend to rise up after someone passes away. Everyone is suddenly jostling themselves into prime position or yeah. saying, you know, I was his best friend. No, I was his best friend. No, you know. And those egos were sometimes very hard to deal with, you know, and, and beating them back sometimes. And, you know, and some people um, at the end may not be too happy. Some of, the, some of his close confidants, you know, in the last few years of his life or, or throughout may not be too happy that their input uh, or their connection wasn't there as much as they thought it should be, and, you know. So, um, but, but unfortunately, you know, you only have a hundred minutes and authenticity of story and character is of prime importance to me. So that's really what I, you know, n not only me, but my kind of what I like to call my co-directors of Ghost, because we all sit there. There's no real hierarchy. We all sit there and we all knew Michael and we all, you know, toss up every aspect and, and create scenarios and create little sequences and put them together and say is this worthy even you know it's, it, it is truly a group and a collective effort at ghost you know there's andrew de groot our cinematographer and and producer there's uh lynn marie milburn editor and producer and sue murray who's very very um you know almost motherly guiding hand, but, but incredibly experienced in the film world. So um, we, we all have a very strong input in shaping the final thing. And we all knew Michael, so it was, it's, I think that's why you end up getting a very uh, intimate um, portrait at the end, even, even unconsciously intimate. How many hours of footage did you receive through the years? Um, it's sort of, Ah, oh, footage and if you had audio interviews as well, because there was a hell of a lot of audio, but, you know, there'd be over 300 hours. Wow. But sometimes it does, it's not as, not as uh, daunting as it actually sounds because, you know, you, um, you, you head first of all towards the Michael interviews because a lot of the interviews are with other band members, managers and things. And so a lot of them, you know, both that we did, but also that we... Um, uh, found in the in the archive world, um, you know, you can just put to one side as something that you um, will look at if you if you can't tell the story in Michael's voice. So sometimes you'd sort of find rolls of film in your attic and things like that, mm -hmm. and you know, so it, it it'd be literally just ten minutes of gold, and so that ten minutes of gold would stand out from the you know twenty hours of sort of repeated takes on a music video because, you know, things like the Michael and Kylie on the boat in Hong Kong Harbour, you know, that's, um, that was found in the middle of a whole lot of rushes of other music videos and we didn't even know we had it and, you know, the majority of that 10 minutes is in the film. Mm -hmm. you know, so it's sort of, it's not as daunting <coughs> as it sounds, but yeah, there was about 300 hours of stuff. I read that you had a desire to make like a four-hour, like kind of mini-series documentary. Now, depending on the success of the film's theatrical run, could that still be a possibility for, say, a DVD release in the future? 
Um, well, if the, the, the biggest problem is the clearing the um, commercial archive and the music and long diversions. But, you know, if, if there was an interest, there certainly seems to be a need, I think, of a different version for Australians who want to hear more music and want to hear more of the stories and don't mm. necessarily need the, um, the story propelled forward at the pace that it usually does need to be in a cinema. You know? So there's definitely a material there for a longer version. I don't know if it's four hours, but you know, we're, we're seriously considering a director's cut you know, that could, could go for two and a half hours. The latter latter part of, of Michael's life was a lot of conflict with the press, especially in the UK. Um, Richard, as someone who knew Michael, I was I'm really curious. How would Michael react to a world of social media? Um, if he was around at the time of Facebook and Twitter, etc., is that something that he would reject, or would it be something that he would embrace because he would control the narrative of his own story? I don't know if it's about control, but I think he would have appreciated social media because, you know, social media is a is a great antidote to the to the tabloid sort of the brutal English tabloid press of his era. You know, it's um, it was you know it's almost Dickensian the, when you when you go through the research and you look at the headlines that say you know you dirty dingo or dirty digger and um, you skirty rat and things like that because he's wearing a, a, a sarong at one stage. It's just, you know, it's really scraping the bottom of the barrel and it's not anything a society should be proud of. But I think social media, with its, like, freeing up of censorship and actually being able to find um, interesting and intelligent things in, in amongst the dross, is... Um, would have been embraced by him and a liberation because you know he, he could have he could have got he, without any middleman or being interpreted by a journalist you know he he could have got some of these thoughts and his you know even just interesting links or things that he connected with out there directly you know mm. I'm sure he would have had a big Twitter account and uh, lots of followers much like a lot of um, pop stars and rock stars do actually have you know it's like so I think, you know, he, he would have, yeah, he would have loved that sort of freedom and, and sort of almost sticking it to the tabloid, the conventional tabloid press. I mean, he was ranting about, back in the day, you know, the Murdoch press uh, tapping his phone and we, and we were all just sort of going, Michael, you're losing it, you're getting very paranoid and, you know, maybe you've got to calm down. And then, you know, what, 10... Fifteen years later, the News of the World scandal comes out of about that era. Yeah. They were actually tapping everyone's phone. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it was uh, he. Yeah, what we thought was, you know, um, egotistical ranting or, or losing it was was basically quite prescient. The film, to for me, is about revelation. Um, yeah. There, it's rewriting a legacy. And I think one of the big things that came from it that, you know, growing up in Australia, you, you there's always been news about Michael Hutchins for as long as I can remember when I was growing up, up, up until his um, untimely death. And I think one of the big things that really came out of this documentary was the head injury that he sustained um, yes. and the very um, real-life consequences that came from that. Um, yes. Why do you think he didn't want to reveal that story to anyone at that time? 
because he wanted to be taken seriously as an artist, especially within his close uh, collaborators, like his band mem- members and bandmates and things like that, and management. And if there was a knowledge, you know, like a, a serious medical knowledge that he was um, impaired in any way, you know, they would have shuffled him to one side to say, you know, well, you don't have to write this song, we'll write it for you, or things like that, you know. And he he didn't want, you know, his songwriting ability, which is, you know, at, at its peak, quite extraordinary, the, the, as, as Chris Thomas says in the film, and I didn't realise this until I, I did the Chris Thomas interview, that he wrote the top lines on a lot of those songs, which is the, the melody that the singer sings. He not only wrote the lyrics, but he's writing these... Um, really high-range melodies where he's got, you know, using the full range of his voice and uh, and very catchy melodies of that while Andrew Farris wrote the basic chord changes and things underneath. Not all the time, it's, but... And that, you know, that was his... Um, that was his potency and he didn't want um, to be not only sympathised with or, you know, sidelined or he didn't want his potency put to bed anyway. And I think, you know, the songs he wrote after that assault show that he still had it, like Searching, that we use at the end of the song, is, you know, is, is a great song. You know, it's, it's it's got much more substance than some of the earlier In Excess songs because, you know, he's singing about deeper and more emotionally tearing things. But when you look at the melody and the and the top line of that song, it's, it's up there with his greatest... Yeah. Um, melodies and so I think he was kind of right but I don't think he was very secure in in that if if people had known about his um, uh, traumatic head injury that they would have actually you know allowed him to keep writing all that stuff. Once you have all of that three hours of footage in front of you and you and your editors and your producers are going through all of it um, is, was there anything that surprised you in regards to your friend, your collaborator that you knew for all those years, were you taken aback by what you had in front of you and what you saw? Yeah, I was. I mean, I was surprised all all the way because I, you know, I, I uh, knew and connected with a very um, optimistic and charismatic and and I would never say moody in any way at all, but you know. Uh, what we uncovered, even going back before the assault in Copenhagen, was someone that you know did spend a lot of time hiding his depressive bouts, and and then so you'd say you'd, you'd meet up uh, for a video, or then some socialising after, or living together on a film set. And so you saw the the great and charismatic and uh, seductive side of Michael. Just and when I say seductive, not you know seductive as a friend and uh, and as a someone to have an enjoyable evening with, not, not necessarily sexual seduction mm. all the time. But you, and, um, and as soon as you start digging and you start hearing from the girlfriends and, and hearing from the, the tour mother, Martha Trout, who was his personal producer, for, you know, who was very connected as a, as a maternal figure for you know, longer than most of his partners, um, you started to see and hear a very different side that you know that he perhaps wouldn't show another Australian male, or um, and yes, yeah, so the the sort of 
the prismatic nature of the story was being filled out continuously. And then, you know, there was the big reveal, which was when I finally got my hands on the um, full unedited Corrins report. And you go, you go, wow, there's another big secret he was um, keeping within, within himself. Mm. I mean, some, we, we, we discovered letters that he wrote in the very early 80s to um, his partners of the time and even they showed ups and downs that you'd never he'd never discussed with you as a friend so yeah the whole the whole process was putting together one of those giant jigsaw puzzles and then you know hopefully at the end it reveals to you know the, the picture of michael and it is quite an incredible picture indeed um my mystify Michael Hutchins releases July 4th. For everyone listening out there, it will be in Australian cinemas July 4th. I do recommend you watch this film. It is simply remarkable. And uh, Richard Lowenstein, I thank you very much once again for your time today and congratulations with the movie. Thank you. Thanks for liking it.